Hey, before we get started, I just want to remind you that we relaunched our FC Insiders newsletter, and that is a great place for you to get news every week, Wednesday at 2 p.m. on brands like Adidas and Taylor, Elf Beauty, Funko, Lowe's, Neiman Marcus, Pinterest, Puma, Rent the Runway, RX Bar, ThreadUp, Me, Wayfair. Do I need to list any more? These are brands that have been on our show, and these are the brands that we're thinking of and how they are shaping the future of commerce. We believe that it's not about predicting the future as much as it is giving you tools and insights to shape your future, and we want to help you do that. So subscribe right now at futurecommerce.fm and get on the list. Let's get to the episode. Future Commerce is brought to you by Vertex. Vertex is the leader of tax technology solutions and services for corporations worldwide. They're trusted by over half of the Fortune 500. Vertex Cloud meets sales and use tax solutions for businesses of all kinds. Visit them online today at vertexsmb.com. Future Commerce is brought to you by Gladly. What if customer service could feel like a conversation between friends? Gladly is the customer service platform that puts people at the center, not tickets or cases. By enabling B2C companies to focus on people talking to people, Gladly powers a lifetime of conversions across every channel from phone, email, text, chat, and social media. See what a truly customer-centered platform looks like at gladly.com slash fcdemo. That's gladly.com slash FC, as in future commerce, demo. Welcome to Future Commerce, the podcast about cutting edge and next generation commerce. I'm Brian. And I'm Philip. And today uh, we have a very special guest, Emily Singer, the founder of the Chips and Dips newsletter, which is a consumer brand focused newsletter that I recently discovered and I'm a huge fan of, uh, is to, is on the show with us today. Welcome, Emily. Thanks for having me. I consider you to be like somewhat of an expert in the uh, space that we're exploring around sort of direct-to-consumer. And, and that's only because um, I think the space is actually quite small and most people can like raise their hands and be experts and say, I'm an expert. But you're doing it in an extremely unique way in that you're doing what I would consider to be sort of like medium to long form content. That's really, really smart. Could you explain a little bit about uh, chips and dips and like, you know, the newsletter and sort of the focus? It's more or less whatever I'm interested in. Um, I don't publish on any sort of set cadence. I don't have any like one thing that I'm kind of diving into. Um, But the general gist is, it's broad analysis of news and trends within the consumer brand space. Um, and it leads with small news bites. Those are the chips. It just like links out to whatever the kind of news item is. There's a dip, which is a deeper dive into whatever's kind of on my mind at the moment. Um, and then there's a real dip recipe to kind of tie it all together. <laughs> That's Which the is best the part. Yeah, yeah, and that's what that's what everyone tells me. Uh, no, it's not. It's not, but it's, a, it's such a nice touch and I feel like I always learn something whether it be a new dip recipe or <laughs> something really really insightful about uh you know direct to consumer or or you know any kind of consumer brand. I I always feel like I learn something every time I read your your newsletter. Thank so you. Congratulations. Well done. Like it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we reached out to you because we just were sort of fascinated by, um, the sort of amount of, uh, knowledge and sort of the depth of that knowledge. So I, my, my first question was who is Emily Singer? Like, how did you come to the point that you felt like, you know, just writing this kind of content was important for you or important for, uh, awareness, uh, for e-commerce brands and retailers to, you know, to learn from. I guess what I'm asking is who who is Emily Singer? So my, I guess my like LinkedIn bio summary, which I'll lead with, and then I'll get to like how the newsletter kind of came about. Um, so I'm founder of Chips and Dips. Um, I work as the marketing manager at Alma, which is a co-practicing community for therapists and mental health practitioners like coaches, acupuncturists, nutritionists. Um, they take a pretty broad, holistic 
approach to wellness um, and general kind of like brand enthusiast, internet sleuth, storyteller. Um, Mm. And the kind of long-winded answer as to how Chips and Dips came about is that I more or less just wanted an outlet. Um, Early in my career, I wanted to work in media and I initially pursued um, a career as a journalist working for digital media brands um, and pretty soon realized that the media landscape just isn't particularly writer friendly. Um, I wasn't really able to write the stories that I wanted to be writing, which tended to be more research heavy, um, analysis driven stories. A lot of it was really just like whatever you can produce the fastest that will get as many clicks as possible and then like move on to the next thing. Um, that's not what I wanted to be doing. So I kind of shifted my attention towards marketing and brand strategy. Um, not realizing at the time that like marketing is storytelling. Like when I was first starting, Mm -hmm. I, in my mind, I didn't know what marketing was. In my head, marketing was advertising and I wanted nothing to do with that. And I just like, I, I, because I, I didn't know any better. Um, so I shifted myself, shifted my attention towards marketing and really enjoyed it. Found it like super fulfilling, but still kind of found myself craving an outlet. Um, I really, really like writing and researching and analyzing things and just kind of untangling threads and the newsletter, serve kind of scratched that itch, so to speak. Um, and I subscribed to a bunch of different newsletters, but wasn't really seeing anyone doing like a casual analysis of news and trends. Um, so like not, not looking at numbers, not looking at like year over year revenue growth or like that kind of stuff, like just really looking at like the story that a brand is putting forth and trying to pick that apart. Um, so that's, what I try to do with chips and dips and I've gotten really great responses thus far. Um, I'm, it's like not even six months old. So, yeah. So how do you untangle those, those trends? You, you I mean, I love the, the research aspect to this and you, you really, I think you've done a great job of identifying interesting trends. What's, what's your method? How do you do this? Um, I spend a lot of time online um, is kind of like the short answer. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Um, And I, for whatever reason, I'm just able to remember things and kind of latch on to things that maybe seem insignificant or small. Um, And I don't know. I, I am very much online. I read TechCrunch and Fast Company like first thing in the morning Um, I'll check Twitter. Twitter is a great source for news. I think Instagram is kind of like a sleeper hit in that area and that brands use it a lot to like tease product, launch new things. And if you follow a lot of direct to consumer brands on Instagram, you'll eventually start to be served ads for new brands that are operating in a similar space. So it becomes a really great discovery tool in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, I I found the same uh, that uh, Brian and I sort of have this story. A few weeks ago, I visited uh, him out in Seattle, and we we did this uh, meet up with Amazon Pay, mm-hmm. and uh, we were driving back and forth to Seattle in the car uh, a few times that week. And every time we get in the car, Brian says, uh, "Oh, play this on your Spotify." And my first response is, "I do <laughs> not want to put things into my search on my Spotify that are." of your taste. Yeah. It's going to ruin my <laughs> yeah, spot. I, and I feel that way about Instagram too. I, like I do not want to search for that. You should because- make a second account that you just use to follow brands. That's what I do. Wow. Wow. I, yeah. I have, I have an account that I use to follow like 200, 200 plus brands and I'll, I don't check it every day. I don't check it as often as my like main Instagram, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just a really great way to keep tabs on what brands are doing. It's interesting that's that that's, it's sort of like you're, you're doing like uh, mental channel management of the types of content you want to see in certain areas. It's like the differentiator of what Slack was 
to AOL Instant Messenger yeah. is, you know, that that sort of you're curating for yourself. I think that's genius. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah. I have this sense that, you know, you as a writer have uh, a different viewpoint in the world. Um, you, you, you're, you're able to communicate uh, very complicated ideas simply. Um, and, and because of your background, I think you do that really well. So a newsletter just makes perfect sense. Um, so your perspective is a consumer, but I'm curious how you bridge that into what seems like really actionable insights or advice. Um, you know, have you worked for a retail or direct to consumer brand in the past? Um, I have. So I, the first kind of direct to consumer experience I had was at a brand called Jack Threads, which was a men's Mm -hmm. e-commerce site. Um, it launched as a flash sale site during probably like I actually don't even know what year. Um like early, early <laughs> on when like when like flash sale was like the thing. Um and it was acquired by Thrillist. And Thrillist was the first company that I worked for out of college. That was my first media experience. And I was hired on more so the media side. And through just like general company evolutions, got moved over to the Jack Thread side. Um, and by that point, Jack Threads had shifted away from Flash Sale and was kind of functioning as like an online, like H&M, Zara, Gap, like basics with some kind of like fashion-y pieces. Um, and it was a really fast-paced environment. So that was kind of my first experience in the brand space. Um, and then most recently I was at Daily Harvest. Um, I was there for almost two years. And mm. that was a different different kind of direct-to-consumer in that it's a subscription business um, where the kind of like sales model is slightly different and the marketing and messaging that you're putting out is you're speaking more to like the broad benefits of the product rather than like, here's why you need this specific t-shirt. Hmm. Yeah. Cause you're speaking to people who have a, a different association with a brand like daily harvest, where to them it might be, you know, weight loss focused or, or health, you know, health conscious, or maybe it's lifestyle like, you know, vegan or vegetarianism, or it can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. Right. Right. And we, and what I really liked about Daily Harvest is that we never spoke about diets or mm-hmm. weight loss or yep. any of that. It's just like everyone knows that they should be eating more fruits and vegetables. So we eat more fruits and vegetables and Daily Harvest makes it easy to do that. Well, my eight-year-old doesn't know that yet. I'm still trying. We have, um, we have, but- <laughs> they have, they have smoothies that taste like chocolate milkshakes oh, and you like with sold. like a cup of kale in it. <laughs> like she'd never know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I want that. I need that. Okay. And uh, this episode was brought to you by Daily Harvest. You can get your coupon. Uh, it's interesting man. what you mentioned there that I think it really sort of harkens when you said Jack Threads, it like turned on a part of my brain I haven't used in a long time, um, which is there are brands that are sort of of a particular area or sorry, era where Jack Threads having a, a business model that was centered around a flash sale made a lot of sense in 2009, yeah. right? 2010. Yeah. That was that was an era of e-commerce and and what we might have called pure play e-commerce at the time. It was all about the incentive and and the timed offer. And we saw a lot of really big players at the time like Guilt Group, which I thought was really interesting rest in peace. <laughs> and um and but there's a we go through trends, we go through fads. And I'm curious if there's a trend or a fad that you see now in the modern brand uh, ecosystem, or if they've more homogenized to operate like the big global uh, traditional brick and mortar brands in that they, you know, they're doing more of the things that those brands are doing. Um, It's less about the shtick or a fit or a fad. Yeah. I think, so I think people are, smarter consumers now they're more thoughtful and intentional consumers in that um i mean people still do love a deal like there's a reason why amazon does prime day and it beats records year after year and just like Mm -hmm. 
is crazy. Um, but I think brands are starting to shift their focus more towards retaining customers and kind of that, like finding ways to extend lifetime value and keep people engaged with the brand. Um, and with that, I think, I think we're seeing two main buckets. One is community driven, which is kind of the outdoor voices model where they engage mm-hmm. people in real life. They do events, um, things like that. And then there's kind of the more like education backed, um, usually with like a sustainability element, like a brand with a conscience, so to speak. Um, and I'd argue that like Everlane fits into that bucket. Um, mm-hmm. Feed, the probiotic brand, does a lot mm-hmm. around education. Um, kind of brands that are brands that are selling selling you something that you can feel good about buying is, I think, where we're heading. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think I'm I'm thinking back to your sort of initial, like what you wanted to do, Emily, like, uh, you wanted to get into, into media, uh, and, and, and then you found yourself here in the world of marketing. Um, and you found yourself in retail specifically. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I, I wonder, you know, as we're sort of seeing, maybe the sunset of Hollywood. And we've talked about this on the show a little bit before, but like new content and the two stories that you're, you know, two brand types that you've sort of, you've outlined here are two, two like go to market strategies, if you will. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, They, they both have really compelling sort of content components to them. Uh, That really you have to tell stories to be in direct consumer retail right now. And, um, and so I, 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 I wonder like, is, what do you think about the role of, of content in retail in in brands? And is the, is, is this, are like, are we the next Hollywood? Is that, <laughs> are we actually even more so like, I think is, we we even saw like a really big rise of like tech as content, mm-hmm. you know, back in the sort of two, you know, the aughts, the two thousands. Um, so it kind of went to halt from Hollywood to tech, but I wonder what do you think about retail and direct to consumer and brands being, uh, then the new, the new main source of how we consume content. Competing forward. for your attention. Exactly. Right? They're competing for your, right. And your money and your money. <laughs> well, yeah, I think, Oh, I like, absolutely think that there's something there. I don't know that it'll be the primary source or, I mean, maybe it is. Cause like at the end of the day, like Netflix is a brand, Disney's a brand. Um, but in the retail space, I do think that brands are kind of spreading their wings and trying to cast a wider net and provide customers with more ways to engage with them. Um, And content is a really simple kind of logical way to do that. Like, um, outdoor voices sells like stuff that you'd wear to work out, but they also have a really robust Instagram, like story, like concept. So you're able to engage with the brand outside of your workout class. And they just introduced a content platform and there's like Mm -hmm. a zine. I haven't seen it yet, but there's a zine that comes with each purchase. So that maybe is something that you keep out on a coffee table after you've like purchased your new pair of leggings. Um, I think that, I think it's all about brand is all about storytelling and it's all about building a rich, immersive experience and content, whatever form that takes, whether that's video podcast exclusively on Instagram, um, even just like email storytelling. Um, it just, it gives people more ways to engage with the brand. I, you know, cynically, I wonder to myself if, if that's just because of the, 
did we get here because this is what the consumer wants and it's what moves the needle for a business? Because if let's, let's face it, uh, I, outside of um, before Amazon prime and before, uh, Amazon originals and, uh, their, their video streaming did, I don't know that we thought of Amazon as a, uh, as a, as a media or a content company. Uh, but they were, you know, they had a tremendous amount of real estate in the psyche of a consumer. And so this is one strategy to take up more real estate in the psyche of a mm-hmm. consumer where a brand like house, right. Which is an aperitif, yeah. which I learned about <laughs> from you, by the way, and from yeah. chips and dips. Uh, go subscribe. Uh, a brand like House has one product <laughs> and they need a way, a vehicle to be able to continue to have a reason to talk to you outside of here's a new product where this product's on sale. It's not just about the purchase of the product. It's having a legitimate reason to continue the story yep. with you. And I, I wonder if that's just an outcome of companies having very narrow vertical and and focusing very, very explicitly on keeping, instead of broadening the category, they're broadening their number of touch points with you to be relevant in every area of your life. Yeah, I think, I definitely think there's something to that. Um, I was actually just talking to someone about um, kind of different categories within like the direct-to-consumer space and how there are certain brands that certain brands whose product lend themselves to repeat purchases like let's say outdoor voices like you can buy as many pairs of leggings as you want but mm-hmm. with some a brand like great jones which sells cookware in an ideal world you buy that cookware and then you don't buy anything from them again because you have the cookware that you need mm-hmm. so content then just becomes a way it's another way to keep that brand top of mind, to take up like, I don't know. It's, Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't, yeah, Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a chicken or the egg kind of situation, I think. I like that, uh, that differentiation between sort of like repeat purchases versus like one-time, long-time purchases and what, how different their strategy has to be around, around how they speak with their consumers and stay connected to yeah. them. Um, I think back to our interview with uh, Charlie Cole from Toomey and, you know, t- you, you're going to buy, you know, a so only so much luggage or hopefully only so much luggage in your life. And to me wants it to be, you know, one of those purchases that, you know, until you decide you want a different color or something like that, they're using that same set of bags for a long, 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 long time. Right. And so, um, they, you know, they, they have a few touch points. He talked about how, you know, they've replaced wheels on the, on the, you know, on the spot and, you know, how how powerful that's been, uh, to their customers. Um, but, but like thinking to like cookware and I, uh, you know, you want to have the same set of knives forever, yeah. forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so how do you, how do you, how is you as a brand, like continue to tell a story there and have those touch points? Really interesting, really interesting point. Yeah. And content yeah. is just a really effective way to get at that because it's, I don't know. If you like send, like what Great Jones does, they send newsletters that feature really interesting people with recipes that they've created using Great Jones product. And maybe it inspires you to create the same recipe, Um, kind of showing the way the product fits into different people's lives. Future Commerce is brought to you by Vertex. Vertex provides cloud and on-premise solutions that can be tailored to specific industries for every major line of tax, including sales and use, income, value added, and payroll. Vertex Cloud is the SaaS solution that automates sales and use tax, including calculation and returns. With multiple service levels and flexible pricing models, Vertex Cloud meets the sales and use tax needs for businesses of all sizes. From recognizable brands like Honda, Pepsi, Verizon, and small businesses the world over. 
Find out more today at vertexsmb.com and be sure to mention Future Commerce Podcast to get 15 months for the price of 12. Once again, that's vertexsmb.com. Future Commerce is brought to you by Gladly. For today's discerning customers, customer service has become the new marketing. The world's most customer-centric brands are realizing that great personalized experiences are the difference between thriving and dying. And that's why Gladly built a customer service platform that puts people at the center, not tickets or cases. By focusing on the customer, Gladly helps power a lifetime of naturally productive conversations across any channel, from phone, email, text, chat, and social media. Gladly helps companies better understand who their customers are, like what did they last reach out about, and whether or not they're more particular to kicking it in a pair of high tops or wingtips. With key customer contacts at their fingertips, companies can meet their customers where they are, and they're empowered to build the kinds of relationships that drive long-term loyalty and long-term revenue. It's tough to try to build a customer experience for the next 50 years using the technology of the past 50 years. See what a truly customer-centered platform looks like at gladly.com slash fcdemo. That's gladly.com slash fc, as in future commerce, demo. I'm sensing a tie-in with chips and dips and the real dip section with uh, Great Jones. I, I feel like there's a natural tie-in. That there is synergy? Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, yeah. A dip party. Yeah. I also really appreciate that you didn't use Away as your example because that's the one I think everybody usually reaches for. Um, my, you know, my, I think the long-term strategy, um, I, I spoke with, uh, I, I led a panel at Commerce Next with... Um, with a uh, uh, shop runner in American Express. And uh, one of the things that came out was, uh, okay, well, this is all well and good for big companies like American Express to say, you should do this. You should form strategic partnerships. Um, and, uh, but how did, how did the little guys make that work? I, I think that uh, sort of the response to that that I thought was really insightful is that, you have to reorient the way that you think about lifetime value because everybody talks about LTV. They all talk about lifetime value of a customer, but they actually aren't in it for the lifetime. They're in it for this quarter and they need to move the needle on LTV this yeah. quarter. And the long-term play to be customer-centric, the long-term play for a company like Away or Casper is not for a way to get into betting and Casper to grow category into travel. It's for them to see opportunity to partner and tell the story together while respecting, you know, the sort of the, 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 the purest strategy of being directly focused on their category. So I would, as in a way, luggage owner would love to see a Casper partnership to choose a hotel or an Airbnb, <laughs> there you go, uh, an Airbnb that has a Casper mattress in it. And I think that's, that is the future of modern brands. Um, and that, I think that's, that could be a recipe for success for any, any brand of any size yeah. at every price point. And I think Floyd has actually done that. The furniture company, they're based in um, Detroit and they have, I think they call it Stay Floyd. And they're basically mm. Airbnbs that are fully furnished with Floyd huh. furniture. Mm. That's that's so transformational. Um, and I think those well, things are so hard to pull off, but when they when they work, they work so well. Um, well, go I, ahead, when, you, when you think about storytelling, story is like has usually more than one character to them. Stories that have more characters that are complex and interesting and have stories that weave together are the best stories. And so when you think about storytelling and you think about brand partnerships, well, you have to talk about how those stories weave together and, and form a new and like more powerful story. Those characters play together. So I, I think that like as brands, you know, for our listeners, as you tell your own story, you have to do it in the context of other characters, like your story uh, is going to be more beautiful and more complete and more powerful when you tell it with others. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, and it's true that like brands today don't exist in a vacuum. I think you need to be aware of the landscape around you. Um, 
And that actually kind of ties into the like multi-brand storytelling leading to something richer ties into kind of an early principle that Glossier promoted, um, which was that they viewed their product and marketed their product as an ingredient within a broader recipe of your skincare routine. It was never meant to be like the only thing in your like medicine cabinet. Hmm. It was like one piece of the puzzle. Um, And I think that especially early on as they were growing their product line, um, like served them very, very well. That's so yeah. smart. It's so it's the opposite of arrogance as a brand. Yeah. It's it's understanding your role and your place. You're not the most important thing in the world. You're you play a part in that story. I yeah. like that a lot. Yeah. I, I felt like that was really interesting. So you're talking about sort of on one end of the spectrum on on the the way on the other end of the spectrum, like at from a social media platform perspective. We had Jeremy King from Pinterest on the show recently. And, you know, he, he said they're, they're sort of positioned as like a, now a dis, as a discovery platform, um, to find things you love is to go out in the real world and then go experience them. So if you have a board of, you know, of, uh, uh, you know, natural, uh, national parks in the United States of places you want to visit, like you should want, like they should lead to real world experiences. They're not trying to force you into a cycle of dopamine hits to keep you addicted to the platform. They're trying to get you to interact with the real world. And that sounds like a lot like brands that have a conscience is understanding the role in the consumer's life that you have and respecting that um, and not vying for 100% ownership of attention. Um, that's that's really, really impressive. Um, so I... Speaking of, uh, you and I, Emily, we visited Showfields recently. We did. <laughs> and and uh, Showfields, for those who may not be uh, aware, we spoke about Showfields first on the show, I think back in episode 97 with Brandon L. Singer from uh, Cushman and Wakefield. And at the time, I had really no concept of what Showfields was, seeing it for myself in real life, uh, recently, uh, was an experience. It was very experience driven, <laughs> but not, maybe not the experience they wanted me to have. Um, I'm curious what, you know, you've now been a couple times, Emily, I'd love to hear. Um, oh, I didn't actually give the background Showfields. It's <laughs> the most interesting story, <laughs> the most interesting store in the world. It is the, you know, people have heralded it as the, uh, the, mall of the future, or, <laughs> uh, it's, it's effectively a, we work for direct to consumer type brands, uh, where there is space set up for brands to come up and set up shop for an ill-defined period of time. It could be for a short period of time, long period of time. It's not always focused on the direct sale or exchange of goods, uh, there on site, but more to experience, uh, the brands in their own little setting. Um, and to interact with them and to apparently have an actor-led guided tour, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, Emily, I'd love to hear more about what you think about Showfields and sort of its role in this new, uh, you know, brand, consumer brand landscape. Yeah, I think, so Showfields is one of a few companies trying to make a direct-to-consumer department store. Um, neighborhood goods is another one doing it and they're opening in New York this fall, which I'm really curious to see what that looks like. Um, and so I first went to Showfields like a couple of days after it first opened. And at that point it only had one floor. It was the ground floor. And when we went this time around, it had three, three floors open to the public. Um, Mm. and they've definitely change the setup since then. Um, when I first went, it kind of felt much more like an Instagram heavy experience where everyone, it a was more crowded in part because it was, it had just opened, but I think it was, I think it was function of beauty, which is a custom shampoo brand was in there and they had like a bathtub that people were like, lying in to take photos with. Um, so it was more kind of like engaging in that sense. Um, 
And it felt like when it first opened, it felt like each brand had its own micro experience and it kind of gave you a little bit more to do, but it still didn't feel super cohesive, which I think is something that has stayed true as it's added two more floors. Um, and I think I'm like, have been thinking about like what felt off about it. And I think it kind of comes down to the fact that the Showfields brand and the Showfields vision is too strong and it's Mm. competing with the brands inside of it. And so you at this point, especially with the actor led piece, you're going to Showfields for the Showfields experience, not to see these brands. Wow. Yeah. I think you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, my, uh, my, I, 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 I didn't hear that viewpoint until just now. I, we hadn't talked about it since. And I, I think I fully agree. Uh, my first experience did feel like I wanted to talk to people more. And there weren't uh, when people. When I felt like, then there aren't people there, <laughs> right? I, I went to go engage with the brands, but in reality, I'm going to engage with a, you know, museum, uh, uh, exhibit of what the brand could be. Yeah. And that's not how I want to interact with, um, you know, when in a shopping context, I also, again, I'm going to the department store of the future. I, 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 my mind was centered around what can I buy while I'm here to sort of take home as, as the, uh, as a souvenir. Um, and, uh, I remember Bob Schwartz of, of Nordstrom.com, uh, fame, uh, he repeated someone else quoting it and maybe someone can look it up and at, uh, attribute it, but I heard it first from him. He said, um, the brand is the theme park and the product is the souvenir. And in the Showfields context, it is very much a theme park, but the only souvenir that you can acquire while you're there is, uh, you know, uh, the memory or the experience of an actor-led guided experience. It's not necessarily the product. Um, and, and if, if I, there were some cases, especially like the Klarna Mm -hmm. man repeller collab, uh, that they had at the space where I probably would have purchased something there. Um, they had product hanging there with a price tag on it, but there was no one there to take a, you know, take an order. Uh, there was no kiosk to interact with. Um, and, uh, so my, my head was certainly fixed around a purchase decision in going there. And I felt like I walked away unfulfilled. Um, but the coffee shop was kind of fun. Um, yeah. Yeah. How does that track with you? Does that sound, uh, yeah. And I think I agree. Like it wasn't, it wasn't clear that you could purchase anything. Like they had tablets in some of the booths, but those seemed like they were mostly being used for like email collection. Mm -hmm. Like there wasn't even a, like a button that you could press to have like a sales rep come over and help you. Like they're, they're like none of that. Um, and I was in thinking about like ways that, okay, if they want it to be kind of hands off where like, it's maybe supposed to be self-guided and there aren't people like, what are ways that they can still create a meaningful experience? Um, and I kind of drew the connection between the Cooper Hewitt museum. Have either of you been? No. So it's a design museum on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. Um, I highly recommend it next time you're in New York. Um, and they give you, when you buy your ticket, they give you this kind of oversized pen looking thing. And as you go around the museum, you have the opportunity to kind of scan things with your pen and it saves your visit for you. So that after you leave the museum, you can go home and plug in whatever like your pin number is. And then you have a digital record of everything that you saved. Cool. Hmm. Which if you're not able, if at Showfield, you're not able to purchase things on site, you should at least be able to kind of like copy and paste them into like a digital record. So borrowing that like Cooper Hewitt technology and applying it to this kind of multi-brand department store of the future kind of thing um 
that I think that would be a really great way to integrate technology and potentially get people to buy things. I love that. It, it's so funny that you bring up the museum example because instead of being at Showfields with with y'all when you were in when we were in New York last, I was at the uh, Museum of American Natural History with my family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, we were, I, I was just thinking about your sort of comparison to a museum. I, I think it's a really good comparison because you know what we did when we were at the museum? We went, we oohed and odd at the things that were there and we took pictures. Mm. And yep. we and yeah. we learned about them. And and I feel like Showfields, based on what you're saying, guy wasn't there, but I would I, I I'm good, I'm gonna go there when I go back to New York. Uh is that this is the place to take pictures. You just you, you brought up the bathtub example, you the Instagram feel, and it's really not a place to purchase, it's a place to get free content. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You go and look and take pictures and then maybe you buy something in a gift shop. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You are, by the way, sort of kind of led through the gift shop on the way out the door. That's a whole other thing. Exit through the gift shop. Um, at Chokes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, but that I, it's interesting. So it's like kind of bringing it full circle. Um, I, I think that's such an interesting sort of takeaway on the current state of it. It sounds like others are trying to replicate it. Um, it brought me back to, and, and this is a little bit of a thought experiment. We haven't ever done this on the show, but I thought it would be an interesting, uh, you know, thought experiment. We, I, I had a conversation with someone who heads up marketing for a digitally native vertical brand recently, and they were saying how their approach to content creation is not just persona based. Um, it, it's more about you know playing to. I, I, they used Myers-Briggs as sort of an example. It's like, well, it's not just the persona. It's deeper than that. It's like, how does an INFJ think about our brand? And let's think about that, which kind of blew my mind. But also, you know, I was sort of immediately put off on on the idea that like Myers-Briggs is, you know, you know something that's going to guide a sales team uh, <laughs> efforts. But that's a whole other, that's a whole other thing. It just got me starting to think about sort of archetypes of the personas of the brands and not necessarily the persona of the consumer. So I thought maybe we could think about that for a minute. You mentioned that there's really two kinds. You said there was sort of two buckets, Emily, about you know those mm-hmm. that are there was uh, community focused and uh, like conscious, educate, yeah, like conscious brands, right. kind of. I'm curious sort of how, how you see the world in, in that regard, like as a content creator, do you think that that helps creating content that way? Is that something that a brand should be thinking about? And is that something that a consumer might really appreciate? Does that make the experience more personal? Or is that something that in this world, like, (laughs) how does that, that sort of mindset around creating marketing sit with you? That's a really interesting question. I don't know that content would be any more effective if you were to tailor it to different like consumer personas. But I do think that there's something to be said for kind of creating content that hits at different value props, which if you're hitting at different value props, then maybe you're more likely version one might resonate with one person, version two might resonate with another, um, and they both ultimately convert and become customers. Hmm. Whoa. Are you saying that what people care about value is more important to a marketer than their their personality? Maybe. <laughs> when you say it like that, it doesn't sound so revolutionary. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, like I, I know like I make purchasing decisions. I probably make purchasing decisions in a different way than you do. Like everyone kind of has different things mm-hmm. that impact what they buy and why. Um, and I I don't think that brands should go out and try to cast like the widest possible net and create content that works for the three of us independently and like differently Mm. of each other. I think brands that are focused and have a really strong story will find their audience. Um, I think Tracksmith is a really great example of that. Um, They're a small running company and 
Like they're not trying to compete with Nike. They appeal to people who are, for the most part, like fairly serious about running, like maybe on a club team, have probably done like a marathon or two. Um, and they they have a very clear sense of who their target customer is and they stick to that. And they're not I don't think they're like going after the couch to five K people. And I think they're okay with that. I also think that there are brands that have elected voices that are automatically exclusionary. So mm-hmm. whom is one that comes to mind is sort of a decidedly sort of bad boy kind of a, you know, not a potty mouth, but they seem to be very forward in their kind of, you know, yeah. I don't know. They, they have an edgy feel to them. Uh, do, is that, what kind of an approach does, like how how do you see that approach playing out? Because it it feels like they're uh, that might not be a sustainable approach for the long term. Not to call them out directly, I think just the idea or the strategy, right? I think brand voice usually evolves as a company grows, but taking a more kind of irreverent tone at launch, if nothing else, can just like get people's attention. I do think that hmm. it's it's tough to maintain that. That said, a brand can have a really unique voice and grow and maintain it and stick with it so long as that voice is kind of created to be future-proof, I guess. Like, if you look at Recess, their tone and their voice and their copy is very distinct. It's not necessarily, like, isolating, but it's something that they've created and they can stick with it as they grow. They're like CBD, sparkling CBD soda company. Got it. They're like... Which is the most 2019 business ever. Yeah, but they're great. They're like, their marketing is so strong. Mm. I'm so fascinated by this space and I'm I'm very thankful for all the time that you've given to us today. Uh, We always close the show and, and... you know, this because we are called Future Commerce. Mm-hmm. We close the show sort of asking our guests to predict the future. Uh, what do you think is one of the most important issues that brands will face in the next five years? Um, and, you know, why should we care about that, I guess, is what I would ask. I think the space is only going to get increasingly crowded and increasingly noisy. And with that, I think literally staying in business will be a challenge for some businesses with like Facebook advertising getting more and more expensive. Mm. And at the end of the day, like, is it really worth it for a small direct to consumer brand that hasn't been in business for a year to be spending more than a hundred thousand dollars a day advertising on Facebook? So with that, I think retention overgrowth and finding ways to foster brand affinity and lifetime value are really going to be key to staying in business and being successful and solidifying that brand story. And I think the brands that I'm most interested in right now are ones that are smaller and focused and are kind of looking to grow steadily. You don't need to build a billion dollar brand. Like you can stay small. It's okay. Mm. I love that. It, it's such a, it's, it's so anti what you hear from a lot of, uh, <laughs> from, from a lot of yeah. VC and, 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 money and, you know, and people that are looking yeah. for 10 X now, like let's, let's build brands that are sustainable and thoughtful and maybe you don't ever become a billion yeah. dollar brand. And that's, you, but, you can be I, okay with that. On like, the business the, side, it also, yeah. it's kind of on the, the people running the brands running the business to be more thoughtful with like how they raise money and how they like gain capital. Like if, yeah, if you're going the venture route, it's going to come with like insane growth benchmarks. But so I I think that's a conundrum and I think this is, you know, we can leave it with an open question doesn't have to be (laughs) solved here. Although I think the three of us could probably solve a bunch (laughs) of problems right here, but um, I don't know that it's possible today to bootstrap a brand when organic is almost dead and social is pay to play. Really, the only thing left is you, you really can't build a digital first brand. You, it, it comes back to local. 
it comes back to what has been the foundation for entrepreneurship, at least in the United States, for a century, which yes. is creating local community, building real relationships, and recruiting people who live and work near you to become fans of you know, your business and your experience. And I, I think that the mom and pop and the upstart bootstrapped brand is really, really difficult to pull off in this day and age with customer acquisition costs on the rise because you kind of need to rely on venture or some sort of massive capital infusion just to you know, get through year one. You buy every single customer that you have and then you hope to hold on to them. I, I don't know that that's sustainable. So I think we maybe what this all comes down to is maybe there is more of a focus back on community, but it's not about digital communities and content. It's about, you know, real relationships. Uh, where can people find your newsletter? It's chips and dips, both plural, dot substack dot com. Awesome. And uh, I hope to have you back on the show again sometime. Yeah. Uh, we thank you for all of yeah, your insights. You, it's been really awesome. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for listening to Future Commerce. Remember, the future is what you make of it. The audio version of our show is produced by Chris Harry at Pod Sherpa. Show notes are written by Jordan Griffey and Leanne Hykend. Scheduling and coordination are provided by Aaron DeCruz. Our intro music is composed and performed by Spectral Wolf. Future Commerce is a production of Protein Commerce, LLC. 